0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. We're going to be starting a new verse by verse sermon series. On the great book of Romans. I'm, I'm super excited about it. I'm calling the, the, the name of the sermon Unashamed. If you know anything about church history at all, you, you probably know that Romans has really been a means by which God has really done some incredible things over the, the history of the church. Uh, by it, he has often brought great repentance. Looks like some of my pictures didn't come through there, but that's okay. He's brought great repentance and also revival and reformation through the book of Romans from, uh, through people like Augustine and, and Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and William Tyndale and John Wesley and John Bunyan and others. They all had significant life-altering encounters with God through this book in particular, and I can't help but wonder what role the Book of Romans has played in your own faith journey. Like seriously, I would love to hear like if Romans has played a significant role in in you coming to Christ, or a significant role in your life as a Christian. I mean, seriously, please write it down. And share that with me. I would love to hear about that. I think it would be such an encouragement as we head into this new sermon series to, to read some of those stories. And I always, as I, as I begin a new book study, I, I'm always wondering, God, what are you going to do in the life of our church through this book, through this great book that we're about to dive into? We are going to be taking a look, an extended look, at perhaps the most detailed description of the gospel in all of Scripture. That's exciting. It's a a great blessing, but I I also recognize as I come to the book of Romans that for many people the book of Romans can be a little bit daunting. I don't know if that describes you at all. I mean, there there are some some passages in here that are, are awful hard to understand. I read a quote by by John MacArthur this week. It really sums up my feelings as I sort of stand on the precipice of of diving into this with both feet. He said this. said, "It, It has been said that Romans will delight the greatest logician and captivate the mind of the consummate genius, yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. You know, we call Romans the the book of Romans, but it's actually a really long letter. I've never written a, a letter as long as this, but Paul had a knack for writing really long letters. Even by ancient standards, this is a long letter. And the first seven verses are the salutation to the letter. In fact, look down in your Bibles here for just a moment. You'll you'll see here uh, the various elements of a a greeting that you would send in a letter here. In verse 1, Paul, a a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So, from Paul. right? And then skip down to verse 7. It says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So, to the, the Christians in Rome. And then he continues in the second half of verse 7. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's sort of like, hello, what's up? God bless you, right? That's kind of like a modern equivalent of that. From Paul to the Christians at Rome, hello, God bless you. That's sort of a simplified version of this text right here. Now you might say, if it's that simple, then let's just move on into the, the meat of the book here that I say to you, not so fast, slow down, all right? We got, we got this whole sermon series to go. And, you know, these, these salutations at the, at the start of Paul's letters are, are much richer than the, the bare-bones modern greetings that we do in our emails or our, our text messages that have no greeting at all, right? Paul packed into this greeting here a lot of, a lot of good stuff. And besides, these verses comprise part of the God-breathed scriptures that God has given to us. Even these types of verses have meaning for us. They're useful. They're given to us for our profit, for our good. And so we're going to meditate on them this morning. We're going to, by way of introducing this letter, we're going to be meditating on these introductory salutary verses. And so let's dive into it here. First, from Paul, verses 1 through 6. You know, Paul is the the Gentile-friendly version of his Hebrew name, which is Saul. It's kind of convenient, I think, that they rhyme in English. Um, But Paul was known by by Jewish folks as Saul. And in the flesh, Paul had an impressive religious resume. In fact, we read about that in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to keep your hand in Romans chapter 1 and flip over for a moment to Philippians chapter 3. We can read here together this resume that the Apostle Paul could have boasted in here at the start of this letter. He says in verses 4 through 6, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Right? These are the sorts of things the Apostle Paul could have boasted in whenever he greeted somebody. Even before, or actually I wanted to finish that because Paul didn't didn't stay there, right? He he was boasting to the Philippians about those things, but he didn't stay there. He goes on in verses uh, 7 and 8 to say, But whatever I had gained, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You know, even before Paul became a Christian, he was a zealous man. But Paul's zealous nature, for the, even for the things of God, lacked the, the true knowledge that he needed. In fact, in his zeal, he was driven to do terrorist-like things to the church. He sought to purify Judaism and, and ruthlessly tried to stamp out all these pesky Christ followers that were cropping up. In fact, Paul was, was on his way to Damascus with papers in hand to literally be able to stamp out Christ followers there when suddenly his life was changed forever. Right? Suddenly, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and exalted and glorious, appeared to him there on the road. And... It says in Acts chapter 9 that the Lord called out to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? That's how closely the Lord identifies with his people. Paul was killing and imprisoning Christians, and Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds to him, and he says, who are you? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And then then the Lord struck him blind. You see, it's ironic because Paul, he thought he could see. (laughs) He thought all these people following after Christ, that they were blind and that they needed to be stopped at all costs. But ironically, the Lord shows up and he says, no, and as a matter of fact, you are the one that's blind. And then the Lord brings to him one of these Christians that he was headed to Damascus to persecute. He sends one of them to him to restore his sight, to teach Paul, look, you can't see, they can see. And it is through them that you will be able to see the truth. So Paul came to know Christ in a dramatic way. It's a remarkable story. It's a story that you can and should read for yourself if you never have, Acts chapter 9. I would say this is an absolutely key story story for understanding much of the New Testament, including the book of Romans, because this is the guy who's writing this stuff to you. It's important to understand where he's coming from. Romans chapter 15 tells us that Paul had yet to minister personally in Rome. However, he had wanted to do so for years. And if you were to spend some time this week reading the last couple chapters of Romans, you'll notice that Paul actually greets a lot of Christians that he knew there in Rome. But he had never actually been there to minister. I, I mean, I, th- I think the way that I would explain this is that there are a lot of Christians who ended up in Rome. I mean, after all, at the time, all roads did literally lead to Rome. Right. So there were a lot of Christians who had migrated there, and the gospel had actually gotten to Rome before Paul could. It's a good thing. Still, it's important to understand that most of the people who would be hearing the, the letter to the Romans would have never have met him personally. So Paul's writing here to a bunch of people who most of them uh, maybe have heard of him, have heard about him, have maybe even Uh, been influenced by him indirectly, but they have never met him. And so as a result, Paul gives us one of the longest introductions that he gives in any of his letters. And notice the way he introduces himself here. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. These are the three things listed up here. None of, of Paul's qualifications in, in the flesh make the list. None of them that he kind of as reluctantly boasts about in Philippians chapter 3 makes the, the resume. No heritage, no degrees, no, no boasting. But he leads with this, this description of him as a slave or a servant of Christ. It's the Greek word doulos. It literally means a slave of Christ. If you remember back to last week when we were studying 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the, the church in Corinth had been actually dividing up, uh, following their favorite leader. Some were saying, I follow Paul, and some were saying, I follow Apollos, and I follow uh, Peter, Cephas, and some were saying, oh, well, I follow Christ, and they were dividing up. Right? Paul was grieved by that. He wasn't flattered by that. He wasn't saying, wow, listen, look, I have a pretty good group that's saying, I follow Paul. This is great. No, he was grieved by that. He said, to the contrary, you should be viewing us just as as day laborers out in the field. It's God's field. It's his work. He's the big deal, right? So Paul's always, he's always conscious of the fact that, that people can tend to become enamored with the messenger instead of the message or instead of the one who sent the message, which is God. He's protecting against that here. It's no coincidence here that he leads with this this title, first and foremost, I am a servant or a slave of Christ. Now, with that said, for, for the sake of the gospel, Paul is going to go on to also make clear that he was, in fact, sent to them by God Himself with an important message of good news. So, though he is merely a servant of his master, how great a master he serves! Right, So if, if I were to send someone to you with a message, that would be one thing, but if, if you're saying that I'm a servant of God sent to you with a message, man, you better pay attention. Paul insists that he, is, he has indeed been called and sent by Christ, set apart, especially as a messenger of God's good news to them. Not qualifications of the flesh, but qualifications that matter in the kingdom of jesus and so christian even though this has been almost 2000 years now since paul wrote this letter you should listen carefully to what paul the apostle sent by god to the gentiles has to say to you this morning and if you're not a believer you should hear him out because Paul is claiming to be sent by God to you with good news, the gospel, and that that brings us now to uh, Paul giving us a brief summary of the gospel itself. You know, this whole letter is going to explode this topic over the the, the next uh, fourteen or so chapters. We're going to dissect it and look at it in its its parts. But Paul here he. He raises this gospel that he has been sent to, to bring to them, and he, he summarizes it for them in the next couple of verses. And, and here's how I see, see this, what Paul is saying here. He says, first of all, that the gospel is not new. So here you have this messenger claiming to be sent to you by God, And Paul is keen to make sure that they understand that this good news that I'm bringing you isn't something new. I didn't invent it, right? It's not not a departure from what God's been doing all along. Look at this in verse 2. He says, um, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, right? This is something that God's been talking about for many years through the Scriptures, through his prophets, And what I'm bringing to you is in accordance with that. It's not new. You know, the gospel is not a parenthesis in some bigger plan as if God was going down this this direction doing this one thing and then all of a sudden Paul shows up on the scene and he's like, okay, here, I've got this extra news over here, something different. No, the gospel is... It is a crescendo. It started in the book of Genesis. We just got done studying the book of Genesis and we saw the gospel there in the first few moments after we fell in the garden. God's promising a redeemer and it just grows and grows through the Old Testament and then Jesus shows up on the scenes in the gospels, raises from the dead and he ascends back up into heaven and the apostles are sent out and now the, the apostles are proclaiming loudly to, to all the earth that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a crescendo, something God's been doing all along, and Paul's keen to make sure that the Romans understand this fact. It's not new. And yet, in verses 3 and 4, he, he does say that it is yet unexpectedly new in some ways. Look at this, in verse 3 and 4, he says that uh, he, he was set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power among, uh, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So even though this is not new, this is something God's been doing all along, there is something to proclaim here. It's news You see, because not only did Jesus fulfill all the Old Testament promises, He he was, in fact, the Son of David, the long-promised Messiah, the, the Son of Man, the Son of David, completely human, a human king, right? But unexpectedly, He was also declared by God to be His very Son. God declared this in power by raising Him up from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, I love how Paul phrases that here, that that it's as if God himself declared it through the action of raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul's just repeating that now. He's just delivering the news of what God has already declared. Jesus is the son of man, the son of David, also declared to be the son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord, a dangerous thing to be proclaiming in Rome where there was a Caesar who himself lorded his power over an entire empire. And thirdly, here, I I think Paul is keen for them to understand that this gospel message that he was set apart to bring to them was not new, yet it was unexpectedly new in some ways, that it was also personally for them. It was for them. Look at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, through whom we have received grace, talking about Jesus, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul connects the dots here from his calling to minister this gospel to all nations generally to his confidence that his calling as an apostle extended even to them who were at Rome. Therefore, even though Paul clearly did not directly plant the church in Rome, still his calling to preach this gospel to the Gentiles included them who were in Rome. God has sent him also personally to them. He viewed them within the scope of his ministry. I think that's, a, that's a, an important connection point with his audience. So that's quite a way to address your letter, isn't it? From Paul, and then he continues here in verse 7, to the Roman Christians. Just read seven, the first part of 7a. It says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. I really love the God-centered way in which Paul addresses the, the Roman Christians here. You know what I mean by that? By, by saying he refers to them in a God-centered way? What I mean by that is that he describes their relationship with God not in terms of their love for him, not in, even in terms of their calling upon God, what they had done. It, it wouldn't be inappropriate to do that, but that's not what he does. No, he addresses them in such a way that, that it's God-centered. It's emphasizing the great things that God has done in their life already. right? That they, he addresses them as those in Rome who are loved by God and called by him to be saints. I always have to clarify here that this word saints it doesn't refer to some super spiritual class of Christians that we're to revere and somehow pray to. That's, a, that's unbiblical. You don't see that anywhere commended in the Scriptures. No, to the contrary, Paul calls everyone who has been loved by God and called by God a saint in Rome. You, like, you as well, if, if you have been loved by God and called by him, you, have, you are a saint. You have been set apart. That's what that word means. It just means to be set apart, to be made holy. You have been made holy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul addresses them in a, in a God-centered way. And then I, I also notice here that he really seems to emphasize that this is for all the Christians who are there, all of them. He fronts this word all. It's an emphatic in the original language. We're going to see here in just a moment that one of the issues in Rome was, and really in a lot of the, the early churches, was um, conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul says no to all those in Rome. He doesn't even just address the leaders. He doesn't address just the Gentiles. He doesn't just address the Jews. He says to all of you who are there, loved by God, set apart by Him. And then thirdly here, I I can't help but notice, this is an observation I know you've heard me make before and I'm going to make it again, that Paul here is writing a letter to Christians, and it's all about the gospel, right? So let us not think that the gospel is just for, for salvation and then we set it aside and we move on to deeper things. Right? This is one of the deepest books in the New Testament, and it's all about the gospel. The gospel is for Christians. It's for your strengthening. It's for you to understand deeply and to grow in book of Romans really wasn't written to be a gospel track, right? It wasn't addressed to all the unbelievers, like, hey, I'm going to write this down so that you can pass this out in the marketplace. That's, That's not what he was doing. Now, I'm sure Paul would have been pleased if an unbeliever would have read the book of Romans, but no, he was writing to Christians that they might be built up in the gospel, and that they themselves then, in in truly understanding the gospel, that they would then go out and preach the gospel boldly to other people. The gospel is for Christians. I think we see that here right at the beginning of the book of Romans. And then Paul greets them. He greets them here in somewhat of a customary way. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know the the customary Greco Roman greeting was to simply begin your letters by saying simply greetings. It's a Greek word karain right? That was the customary greeting. It's like what's up? Right? That's what it was. Don't even think about it. But Paul he kinda he kinda makes a twist on that. Instead of saying Karain, he said caris. Grace, the play on words. Grace to you. He took the customary Gentile greeting and he he infused it with grace. And then likewise, the customary Jewish greeting is what? Shalom, peace. And so I love how Paul combines these two things here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a greeting. What a way to greet someone by Uh, blessing them with with the grace of the gospel and the peace of the gospel from God himself to you. Not just a vain hope, not just a platitude, but it's a very real greeting amongst those who have been loved by God and have been set apart for his purposes. One thing else I want to talk about here that is not specifically found in the text is uh, sort of the when and where of, of this. Paul says in, at, at the end of the letter again in, in chapter fifteen, verses nineteen through thirty-two. If you want to read that later, that he has fulfilled his his ministry in the east. You know, he's been on uh, two two and a half missionary journeys, and he's he's established churches all through up from from Israel up through. Uh, you know, Turkey and Greece up in that in those regions, Macedonia, and uh, Paul says, you know, I'm wrapping up that kind of ministry. The gospel has 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 been uh, delivered safely there, and then he tells the Romans that he's now eager then to finally visit them who are in Rome further west, and he actually lets them know that on his way through, he's looking forward to strengthening them, and he he recognizes that the gospel has already arrived there, that the church has already been planted, and he's looking forward to them in turn strengthening him. And then sending him out even further to the west to go to Spain. And and so the fact that Paul expresses this desire, he's speaking of that, but then he he goes on to tell them that, "But, but before I can come see you, I have plans to go to Jerusalem and to, to bring a, a, a contribution that I've been collecting for the poor, persecuted uh, Christians who are in Jerusalem. And so the fact that Paul shares this little detail of what he's about to do, it, it's really specific. It helps us to, to locate where he's at in his third missionary journey in the book of Acts. It seems most likely that Paul wrote Romans during the three months that he was in Greece, which is described in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. But it's possible to push this even further. It's probable that he not only was just in the whole region of Greece, but that he was in the region of Corinth. There's evidence both in the letter and also some archaeological evidence, which I don't want to get bogged down in right now, that, that really helps us to believe that Paul was in Corinth and in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 through 3, and that the, the, the year was around 55 to 58 A.D. The d- difference in dates there is there's different dating theories of, of, for ancient dates. But that's pretty close, right? 55 to 58 A.D. is probably when Paul... Uh, put quill to, to paper and and wrote this. Actually, I say that. Paul himself didn't write this down. He dictated it to uh, a man named, I always mess up his name, uh, Tertius. If you look at Romans sixteen twenty two, 22, uh, after writing the whole letter, his the person who kind of was his secretary says, and I, I want to say hi to you too, Tertius, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Um, so that's sort of when the, the letter was written. Now, one reason why I feel like that, that matters, why I actually took some time to explain that to you, is that in the year 49 A.D., the emperor of Rome, his name was Claudius, he actually expelled all the Jews from the city of Rome. Can you imagine that? Not very PC, right? He <laughs> actually expelled a whole people group from the city. Why? Well, a a Roman historian by the name of Suetonius recorded this, and this is a direct quote from his historical volumes. He said, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of crestus, and what we think, what most scholars think is that this crestus is probably a misspelling or a misunderstanding of the Greek word for Christ, which is Christos. So, there was, there, it seems like there was probably some conflicts between the Jews and the now Christians, Jewish Christians, and Claudius was like, I've had enough of this, you're all out of here, get out. 49 A.D., just a few years before Paul wrote this letter. Now, we also know from history that that many of the, the Jews ended up returning by the year 54 A.D., shortly before Paul writes this letter. So. People speculate, we don't know for sure, but we we can speculate that perhaps one of the reasons why Jew-Gentile unity figures so prominently in the book of Romans is because perhaps when the Jews came back into Rome after being expelled, maybe they arrived and found that the church had changed. Maybe there was some real conflict that, that arose from that. We don't know. Uh, but I, I felt like it was an important piece of background information that you might like to know. Now, why would Paul write, why why did he write this letter? I, I wanted to boil down uh, about three points here of why I think Paul wrote the letter. And the first one was the one I just explained to you, Jew, Jew-Gentile unity in the church is figures very prominently in this book. And then... Secondly, I think he did it simply to strengthen them in the glorious gospel of God. As I've already explained, Paul was chomping at the bit to preach the gospel in Rome. Um, But he needed to take care of some other things first. And in the meantime, I think he was eager to get going, strengthening them in the gospel, strengthening their doctrine. And, and then, thirdly, as I've already kind of mentioned this as well, I think Paul wrote this to, in order to set the Romans' eyes on the mission. So he's letting them know, "Hey, look, I am, I am finally going to probably be able to come see you." But he was—I think he was setting expectations ahead of that visit, so that they would understand that that Rome wasn't really his ultimate destination. He wanted to go to Rome and beyond. You know, I, I think. You know they probably would would anticipate the arrival of, of Paul in such a way that they maybe would he would arrive and they would want to hold him close say "Why don't you stay here for a couple years and paul's saying no I, I'm there to strengthen you, and I want to be strengthened by you but then a- after that, I want you to send me off to Spain for the sake of the name, for the sake of the gospel. I think these are just two or three of the reasons why I think Paul put quill to to paper and and wrote this uh, letter to the Romans. And the only thing that remains then is for me to personally share with you why study Romans now as a church, I mean for us. And, you know, I I have a really full heart of why I want to study Romans, but I want to give you just one overarching reason that I want to share with you this morning, and and that is simply that we might be unashamed of the gospel as a church. That's why I've I've named this series Unashamed. I recently read an article by a, a Christian blogger named Trevin Wax, and the name of the article was entitled, When the Church Apologizes for Its Beliefs. The article tells a true story about The the Church of England, and I'm not picking on the Church of England by sharing this story, but uh, it's a good illustration here of what I'm talking about. Uh, Apparently, the Church of England felt compelled to publish a statement affirming a historical orthodox teaching of the church. Uh, It was a historical orthodox teaching of the church that up until recently had remained unchanged for thousands of years. You, You could maybe... Guess what that issue is, but it's not really the specific issue that's the point of why I'm bringing this up. Uh, The point is that it shouldn't have been surprising for the church to be reaffirming what it has all along maintained. Yet it it was surprising. It was surprising to the people of England that the church would come out and say this. The statement captured people's attentions and it, it grabbed headlines. And and in turn, then, the the Church of England was shocked by the backlash and the mockery that they received at the hands of the public through the media. Now, just days later, the, the church leaders were then in the news again after all this backlash, this time acknowledging that their initial statement had, quote, jeopardized trust and caused hurt and division. They were embarrassed. The article notes that nothing in the, in the follow-up statement retracted the substance of their earlier pastoral guidance, which made their subsequent apology something like this. We're sorry we told you what we believe. The article concludes, why would we assume that we are more relevant or appealing to the world when we present the teachings of the Christian faith in the most tortured way possible, almost as if we too are uncomfortable with our religion's teachings as others are. The lack, this lack of confidence, obeying Scripture only out of a sense of reluctant obligation, communicates to the world that we lack faith in our own confession. Perhaps we owe an apology to the world, not for saying what we believe, but for not really believing what we say. What the world needs most is a church full of, gracious and confidence, full of gracious confidence in the goodness and beauty of our king's commands. Let me say that again because I flubbed it here. What the world needs most is a church full of gracious confidence in the goodness and beauty of our king's commands. I thought that was really good. The theme of the book of, of Romans blazes bright and clear right from the first chapter when Paul confidently declares to uh, people living in, in pluralistic Rome of all places. You know, Rome was a melting pot, just like America, just like this area. People from all over the world there. And yet Paul confidently declares in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you personally know the gospel, the good news, that contains the very power of God unto salvation? Have you personally been saved by it? Christian, do you know the gospel? If I were to ask you to share with me the gospel this morning, could you do it? Do you know the gospel well enough to discern the difference between the true gospel and the false gospels that are being peddled all around you? Do you know the gospel well enough to preach it to yourself in the midst of suffering? Do you know the gospel well enough to preach it to yourself when you're successful? Do you know the gospel well enough to minister it here at this church to those coming up behind you? Do you know the gospel and believe it enough to share it boldly without shame outside of these four walls? And I don't mean just knowing the gospel up here, but I mean knowing it down here, right? As a, as a burning conviction. I think we could all grow in these things myself, Included, And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to jump into this book together. I want us as a church and individually to be what Trevin Wax in that article called uh, a gracious, we, I want us to have a gracious confidence in the goodness and beauty of our king's command, specifically a gracious confidence in the goodness and beauty of our king's gospel. And it's my prayer for all of us that we might be humbly unashamed. And so I want to challenge you to dig into the study with me. Read Romans with me. Uh, It's not going to be rocket science where I'm going to preach from next. If I preached on the first seven verses, guess where I'm going to be next week? right? Dig into it with me. Uh, Try to read it ahead of time and and ask questions and study it on your own. I think the more that you dig into it along with me, the more you'll get out of it uh, together. And so uh, if you do... uh, I think you'll be surprised at the work that God does of repentance, revival, reformation, uh, just like he's done again and again throughout history. So let's pray together to that end.